Hey gang, Red Hills Rancher here with another episode of your favorite Regenerative Ag podcast, Ranching Reboot. This episode and future episodes are available to subscribers on Patreon and Spotify without ads. Go to patreon.com forward slash Red Hills Rancher or check the show page on Spotify. Speaking of Spotify, over the last two weeks, I asked Spotify polls if you guys thought Regenerative Ag was the future and y'all thought it was. And I also asked about storing carbon in the soil. And it's pretty clear that you guys think regenerative ag is the way of the future. And when it comes to carbon, I'm working with grassroots carbon. In fact, you could say I'm on the ground floor. I helped draft the program and the agreement. Here's how it works. Go to grassrootscarbon.com reboot and sign up to see if your land qualifies. If you're a good candidate, grassroots will send you a contract. Assuming you sign it, Grassroots then sends a team out to take deep soil cores to be sent for a lab for an estimation of how much carbon your soil will store. Grassroots fronts the cost of the measurement and certification, and when they start sending you checks, the measurement certification costs are taken from the first payment and you get the rest. For the years two to five, you'll get paid on a very conservative estimate, and in the fifth year, they send a team back out to take another set of soil cores and see if they beat your estimate, and then they issue a final true-up payment based on how much carbon you actually stored. If you're truly bought into regenerative ag and want to join the soil carbon gold rush, go to grassrootscarbon.com reboot or click on the link in the description to start your soil carbon journey today. That's grassrootscarbon.com reboot. For this week's episode, I packed up the studio and the wife and we drove over to her cousin Aaron Sawyer's farm just outside of Protection, Kansas. Aaron and his wife Macy sat down at their dining room table and I did my best in post-production with the limited time I had to clean up the audio. But there is a little bit of background noise. That happens when you're on a farm with two young, feral farm children running around loose. Aaron and Macy make a great team. They take turns talking about how they met and how everything from health to the food we eat all circle back to the soil, which folds nicely back into Aaron's new job as director for No-Till on the Plains. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Aaron, how long has it taken you to grow that beard, man? I think I've had a beard full-time since thir- since 13. Well, it's about as old as mine. I think I started growing mine in, what, 11, 12? 12 or 13. Yeah, something like that. Okay. Well, you're the only guy that's got a redder beard than I do right. in this part of the world. Right. So, you know, when we get together, it's kind of like <laughs> you know, we stand next to each other. I don't know, do, do you think people have a hard time telling us apart? I got more hair. Oh, that's rough, man. That that's that's dirty. That's dirty. Jeremiah said daddy to you just a little bit ago. Yeah. I was like, that's not your daddy. <laughs> oh, that's not dad. <laughs> okay, so we're here with Aaron Sawyer. Where where are we, Aaron? We are just east of Protection, Kansas, on our family farm. At your dining room table doing uh first on location podcast that we've done. We got uh I've got my better half, Tanya, here, and uh, do you want to do, introduce Macy a little bit? And then my wife, Macy's here. She's an integral part of our you know, operation and 
And when I work at home, she uh, watches my kids that are also here today. So, Yeah, so just fair warning, there are two feral farm children running around, and we may hear them in the background. It's okay. We've got it under control, trust me. So um, how, how long have you guys been here, Aaron? I moved out here 2013 or 14 to the farm. Before that, I was just living in town. Okay. Well, I want to ask you about no-till. How, how did you come in to no-till on the plains? So, you know, I had been in extension for eight years, a little over eight years here in Comanche County. Uh, we went through COVID, the shutdown, you know, they we couldn't have meetings. We couldn't meet with producers. It kind of took the the fun out of that the job the people side that that was the fun side and and then just after that some things the university were doing uh and i'm not jealous of their position of having to do those things uh i started wanting to find a new job so we'd been praying for about 18 months that something would come along somewhere it's okay. Just feral farm children in the background. <laughs> and then out of the blue, I was uh, building some electric fence. My phone's ringing, and I look, and it's Michael Thompson, which is president of the No Tell on the Plains board. And he said, hey. That's usually a call you want to answer. Have you seen that we have a job opening? I said, well, I saw something on Facebook, but I don't know. I don't know if I'm qualified for that. That's That's bigger than what I've ever done. He's like. No, you're you're qualified. You you ought to think about it. So we we thought about it and applied. Oh, somewhere late December, early January, and that's right when they were doing their their winter conference. So I didn't get an interview until March, uh, and got the gig. Okay, what was it like working for Extension? I love the people. I loved uh, the kids. Okay. Um. I didn't like the uh, some of the stuff just from above, and, and like I said, I'm not jealous of them. Like they have a policy that's you know all for one, one for all thing on campus. That out here we have the same rules. They don't always work. You understand that big city rules don't always work in rural environments. So it's just you had to toe the line, uh, push where you could. Uh, you know, we went through two wildfires two farm bills and COVID in those eight years. So yeah. I went through a lot of stuff. But the the funnest part of the job every day was the people. Getting to deal with producers, uh, meet people. You know, that's where I met, like, Gail Fuller and Michael and, and all those was through Comanche Pool and extension meetings. Okay. Well, if you mention the Comanche Pool, we might have to talk about that a little bit yep, later. Yep, Um. So tell me, tell me a little bit more about your work with No-Till on the Plains. So I've, in May, I had been here a year. So I've been here a little over a year. Uh, started in kind of an oddball time of year. You know, I started in, in May, and then we just went full force on planning winter, winter conference, and then I had a bus tour gifted to me. I had a couple, you know, board members that had been planning that. So we took a bus tour in August to the Dakotas, uh, you know, 50 three or four passenger bus that I think had two empty seats. So it was uh, people from all over the country. I had a guy from Mississippi, 
uh, guy come from D.C. So it was a good trip to go up there and see Regen Ag at scale. Uh, you know, we went to uh, Dakota Lakes and saw Dwayne Beck. We went to Minokin and got to hang out with Jay Fuhrer for a morning. So it's, you know, name of names that you could go see. Right. I I heard from more than one person that was on that bus tour that it was a really, really awesome thing. Are you planning on doing another one? <laughs> There's talk of doing one next year. Okay. It's hard to uh, to hit up sponsors back-to-back years to make that. And, you know, we had awesome sponsors uh, that had that where if you would share a motel room with somebody, your ticket was 300 bucks to get on the bus. That gave you two nights in a motel and every meal. Uh, the only thing you had to buy was your alcohol in the evening. We didn't. Our sponsors weren't going to cover that, which is understandable. I know some of the people on the tour, and I probably wouldn't cover their booze bill either. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Very cool. So um, I guess let's back up a little bit um, and and talk about the family farm here. And, well, maybe let's let's back up a little bit and and talk about soil health. Let's talk about your soil health journey and how and how kind of like during working for extension, you saw that there might be a better way to do things. Right, so it starts just a little before extension. I moved home in May of 2010. You know, I had gone away to college and worked for a veterinarian after college for a few years, and I did not like the big city life. Uh, Out of the blue, Mark Lording calls me, says, hey, what do you get paid? (laughs) He's a good friend, so I said, that's what I get paid. He said, well, I'll match that if you can come home and work for me full time. And I thought, you know, I was dating a different girl at the time. She was not going to move back here. I had gone to college to not move back here, which I didn't know why. I like it here. Right. Um, so I came home in May of 2010 to work for Mark and worked for Mark from 2010 to 2014 before I went to extension. So having a boss that has a good father as well, Arlie, yes, that had been... I don't know that they've been through ranching for profit, but similar. Hang on. Yeah. Similar minded as that program. Right. So I had really good mentors at the beginning of the business side. And then seeing them kind of progress into uh, less tillage, more no till, then cover crops, you know, became the cool buzzword. So one of my first extension meetings, Gail Fuller's on agenda i've never met gail oh wow that's so I an meet awesome gail, first extension meeting and i'm in charge of the meeting so i'm introducing gail you know i had a little script to read i listened to his presentation and i'm sitting in the back of the room watching him like here's somebody that hates intervention in farming just as much as i do because he had just gone through his uh debacle over insurance and i just turned into a friendship right there of being able to email or call him uh that that was what really started my the wheels in my mind were turning but finally having a mentor like that to to bounce ideas off of that you knew you had a safe environment right the growth really started right then with just a small having one friendship. person to encourage yep. you and to to see things from your side and somebody telling you that some of this stuff stinks you're going to have failures this we just had this you know i went bankrupt because of this but our soil's better we're getting better None of that matters. Okay. Um, I, Gail, 
Gail Fuller is one of my favorite people. Same. Like, he he, that guy. He's just got he's got a good energy. He's got a good story, and he's not he's not afraid to share it. He's not afraid to bear his soul. In fact, uh, you know, over at the Fuller Field Day last year, you guys were there with your kids, and that was, I mean, that was just a great time. Hopefully, we can all get back over there again at camp. Yeah, Macy's claim that she likes and she says we're keeping it this year is so our kids have been to Fuller Field School every year of their life. So Jeremiah's three for three. This would be four for four if we make it this year. And then Kay would already have attended two before her second birthday. Can you imagine having had that influence at that age and like how much further ahead in life a person is going to be just simply by, by being exposed to the ideas? Open minds, really. Macy, we got to get you involved here. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. That, you're fine. So how did you meet this guy? Uh, I was managing the liquor store, and he came in every day, and I thought he had a uh, alcohol problem because <laughs> he'd buy a six-pack. And finally I told him, I was like, hey, if you would buy the 30-pack, you would save so much money per week. And he was like, oh, okay. He would never ask for my number. He'd message me on Facebook, and finally I just gave him my number because I was tired of messaging him on Facebook. <laughs> it's like, here's my number. Ask me out, damn it. Well, at not, the, not yet. No, because at the time I I gave him my spiel about how I didn't need a man because at 21 you can adopt a kid in Kansas, so I really didn't need a man, and I had just gone through a really rough uh, patch. And so it took a few months, and then finally he asked, he'd said that he wanted me to be his girlfriend. And I was like, okay. But he didn't ask, so he waited a couple hours and he's like, well, what's your answer? I was like, you never, you stated a fact. You didn't ask. <laughs> and so he'll argue about what day we really started dating because it was after midnight when he finally was like, well, do you want to? So I'm so <laughs> impressed that you actually waited and made him ask you. Um, good for you. That's just how my dad raised me. Well, good so. for your dad too. Because I've made you can't tell the woman you want her to be your girlfriend. You got to ask those questions. No, there. there was one time in high school, a kid came and honked for me to come out, and I started to get up, and my dad's like, "What are you doing?" It's like, "Well, they're here." He's like, "No, you are, you are not a prostitute. You will sit here, and he will come to the door." And I was like, "Okay." So after that, she taught you how to treat her. Do you need Do you need a minute to take care of her? And that's like you said, the, the kid noise. So our kids go everywhere with us. Yeah, That's one thing. Uh, I haven't taken them to a full-on no-till meeting yet just because when you're working and, you know, you work at home, you need to have a little bit of professionalism at some point because they bomb in on some of my Zooms. Uh, I was talking to Jennifer Similink the other day with Kansas Soil Health Alliance. Yes. On, and that window on speakerphone because it's the only window I could get service in. Okay. And Jeremiah was dead set that that was mommy. So he's sitting there saying, hi, mommy, when are you coming home? And Jennifer's laughing, you know, I'm a mommy, but not your mommy. So it's it's nice to be in an environment, you know, where people realize that family matters. Well, it's the whole bit. I mean, why why do any of this? Yeah, and can't. that was the thing in an extension when when my passion wasn't there anymore, going every day to work. By the time I got home, I was ready for bed at 630 at night. So my family was missing out on me, even though the bills were paid. So as we really needed a change for my health, for my mental health, mm -hmm. to get out of there, 
just because that wasn't my passion anymore. It just had changed. It's a really important thing you bring up and haven't talked about it a lot, but during COVID and being with extension, I imagine that wasn't just difficult for you, you guys as a family, but like everybody in extension mental health wise, trying to juggle all of that craziness during COVID. I can't even imagine what that was like. Yeah, It just, you make, you know, you've got a calendar, you make plans like for meetings for speakers for a year out, six months out minimum. And when you get there a month before and they're like, you can't do these. Okay, well, are we going to have to pay the speaker? <laughs> so there were some speakers that found out right then that they they really needed to have a deposit because they, they didn't have a procedure for that, and they lost a chunk of money because of mandated, you know, cancellations. Yep, yep. I imagine probably more than one guy bought plane tickets. Yep. Yeah, yeah. So one of the things that we want to talk about is – and, and I don't know how to tie all this together. Like the relationship between soil health, having feral children, and homeschooling, and how do you balance all that? <laughs> so we're not quite to homeschool yet. I'd like to start Jeremiah on a little bit of stuff uh, this fall because he'll be four. He's just ornery. He's smart. And I'd like to channel his energy a little bit at some things other than destruction. <laughs> uh, but I look back, Tanya's laughing, you know. You didn't my, do that until you were like 20. First, you know, she's my first cousin. And we were talking before we set up that my mom would drop me and my brother off at her house. And then some other feral cousins would come. And there was uh, six. six of us that ran the streets of Coldwater from 8 o'clock in the morning to I had to be back, you know, to the house by 5 to go home. Uh but we were together all the time, planting in the dirt, building tree forts. We planted a garden. Tanya and I had we our planted, own garden. Yeah. When besides, we were probably like seven, eight, yeah. nine years old. Maybe. Oh, I can't imagine you two guys planting a garden. Yeah, I remember planting carrots across the alley at yeah, the house. Across the, the alley that you pull into park, we mm-hmm. had a garden over against the fence. Yep, yeah. and that wasn't like inspired by parents or anything. That was just nope. me and Aaron wanting to grow stuff. And then our other cousins were always building... We're talking about building tree forts and trees thirty feet up in the air, and like if I saw if I saw Aaron's kids in a tree thirty feet in the air right now, I'd have a stroke. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how my parents survived. Yeah, and I don't know how. Any well, of they us... did. They survived because they didn't look out the window. Yeah. They had no idea what we were doing. <laughs> they just didn't look, so they didn't worry about it. And we didn't have any broken bones. None of us. Which is like. How? Oh, I remember I almost fell out of the tree when my mom moved into the new house. She, mm-hmm. I, I remember falling off and hanging on, and she had to, had to go get her out of the house and come get her to grab me so that I didn't fall 10 feet out of the tree. But that was the worst worst thing I ever think about happening. Okay. <laughs> so let, let's, let's rewind a little bit. Right, so back to your question. Yeah, <clears throat> how, how did you discover, well, okay, college. Where'd you go to college? So... I went to Hutch Juco first, okay. and I had taken enough college credits in high school that I could piddle along at Hutch, so I took 12 hours of semester. 13 hours was my biggest semester, and one of those was golf for my PE credit. <laughs> so I just coasted through two years at Hutch, uh, worked 40 hours a week to pay bills and you know do what I wanted to. Uh, I was a vet major when I went to Hutch. Okay. In one semester, I realized that I liked finer things in life better than I liked to study. 
<laughs> and that was like another eight years of schooling. I was, when I looked at it's a hundred grand, I was going to have to borrow. So when I started figuring a hundred grand, it's going to be a while before I make any money when I have to pay that back. That was the biggest one was the, the, the price. And when he had to have straight A's to get in all that, I, I was totally, you know, straight A in high school. That's because it was easy, though. It's you, not like you're an overachiever in school, were you? No, no. I did the same amount of work in college I did in high school, just high school was easier. And you got C's instead of A's, right? I got C's. <laughs> and C's no, and then I got, when I got older and, you know, finally got mature as a senior, <laughs> then I could get all A's because I, you know, I didn't go to class a whole lot. I worked. Okay. But then I, after Hutch, I transferred to K-State, and I thought, I don't want to go to to university, but I've got scholarships and my parents will be disappointed if I quit school now because, like Tanya said, school was pretty easy. I didn't work a whole lot. Uh, so I thought, I don't know what I'm going to major in, but I'm going to major in animal science because that's my background and I know enough to get by without having to study. Okay. So yeah. animal science degree then? Yep, animal science production. With I tried to do an emphasis in beef. I thought maybe I wanted to do embryo transfer in cattle or something, you know, repro physiology wise was what I was thinking at what twenty two. Okay. So how did that translate to being director of <laughs> We went from there yeah. to Marks. Yeah. yeah so, I, I, okay. Yeah. I, I'm wondering how you I just I want to get out of you how you discovered that everything you knew was wrong about soil health yeah so i worked when i got done with with college i go into uh the the repro uh instructor say hey i want to go to grad school because i had a girlfriend that hadn't graduated yet he's like i don't have any assistantships but you can go to grad school it's just going to be on on you which you know, what 17 or some thousand dollars a year I'm thinking, I don't want to do that. But he said, what do you want to do? So I said, I like cattle. He said, well, go find a vet and work for a vet that does cattle stuff. So I found a vet there in Manhattan that was doing you know, embryo transfer for like gardeners and all over the country. Okay. Uh, so I drove all over the country for two years, eating fast food, sleeping in motels, at least a night or two a week with pretty much no, uh, no home life. And... I was probably the most unhealthy I was ever, you know, I ever have been. And then I went to work for Mark after that. Okay. So that's when I started, you know, came home, started eating better food, started helping Grandpa. His health was declining here on the farm. Uh, (laughs) His kids just jumped in front of him and started scribbling on his paper. That's why he got a little bit distracted. I think they can get all those. Yeah, came home. And that's when, uh, you know, things were starting to change on the farm. I'm uh, from uh, conventional ag, you know, full tillage growing up and graze every blade of grass and feed hay to get through the winter because, by God, that's just what we do. Well, when I went to well, work... Well, we've always done it that yeah. way. When I went to work for Lordings, they didn't feed hay all the time. They didn't eat every blade of grass. You know, that was my first time of rotational grazing was stepping foot on their their place so i got a you know a crash course there uh and i'd worked for them a little in the you know 
during college in the summer or something like that, but I hadn't been there full time. So that was where uh, seeing the business side of things, and then when you start meeting like Gail and them, you realize that that really made the business better the more I stayed out of things. So, you know, when I went to college, I was always the skeptical one of when the teacher told me, you know, something, I always asked why or how do you know this? Are you like, you know, there's an electron there. Well, you can't see an electron. How do you know it's there? Brian's smiling right now, and I feel like he's glaring at me a little bit, maybe because... No, 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 I'm, I'm just soaking it in. Why? Why is always, like, the next question? I mean, you, it's always been yeah, that way. Yeah, I've always, like, uh, my parents were mad when we were younger, my little brother and me. He's three and a half years younger than me. They had a couple lawnmowers sitting out on just the slab by the garage. We disassembled them. But we didn't do it, you know, the the right way. There were bolt cutters and hammers, hammers and, <laughs> but we figured out what was on the inside. Well, my dad used to let us take stuff apart because like we that. wanted to know why or what was in there. So it's always, uh, you know, I've always had that why in me. And then I had a really neat uh, great grandpa Lawrence that bought all this. That's the family farm that's divvied up now. Okay. You know, he bought some of it he inherited, but most of it would have been bought in the 30s when they said you couldn't buy things. And he did it, paid for it. I, I think there were some I think there were some sharp guys in the 20s that saw it was coming and could and, yep. and position themselves to take opportunity yep. advantage of opportunities in the market, you know, from their neighbors that maybe didn't have as great an idea what to do and farmed it to death and had to leave. So, having a grandpa that was like that, he was conservation minded. Because he had grown up in the time of nothing, grandma, you know, great grandma had talked about where there was times they didn't have food for days because wow. they lived in town. They were poor. There was no money. They, there were days they just didn't have food. So she had said, you know, our family's never going to go through that. So seeing them, you know, grow a big garden, can buy things in bulk, have food on hand, uh, plus take care of your land that takes care of you. Grew up having awesome populations of pheasant and quail to hunt, good deer hunting. The neighbors didn't always, but we did because his management was different. And you couldn't see that till you get old enough to look back and be like, well, duh, this is why. Hey. It's management. It's yep. always management. Yep, and I appreciate that perspective. I'm glad you mentioned, you know, the, the birds. You know, we see the same thing, you know, on my ranch versus a neighbor's ranch. Yeah, I don't have food plots. I don't have deer feeders. I still have plenty of deer. I don't need to have those things because I've got good deer habitat. And when you let your big blue stem and Indian grass get five feet tall, that's really good deer cover because they're the same color. I mean, the deer are the same color as the grass, and they could just lay down and disappear. Yeah, have, You have to trip over them to find them. We, we forget that the number one wildlife habitat here is warm-season native grasses, period. We want to try to manage something because we're people. We want to be in control. Well, what I've learned is if I just control me, most of the other stuff sorts itself out, which is a really hard pill to swallow. You know, as a just as a man, it's hard to not want to be like, I want to kill this because I don't like this there or, you know, this isn't as pretty as this would be. 
That's an interesting way to put that managing me because we talk about managing for what you want all the time rather than for what you don't want. Um, we just had somebody come and spray poison down our driveway a few weeks ago and it was it's just upset the whole ecosystem of the yard. But when you think about managing for what you want and you think about managing yourself, that's that's really an amazing perspective because if you're managing for yourself and your family that it encompasses everything that might go wrong, really. And there's going to be a lot go wrong. There is. Yeah. Yeah. And as long as your family's okay, you can handle those things. Okay. So you're working for Mark and you're getting a taste of cover crops mm -hmm. and no-till and returning some livestock back to tillage ground and doing rotational grazing at some high densities. Now, you know, I know Mark, I've, I've bought some stock from him. I've, You've been to field days on his place. We've talked about stock densities. So maybe talk about some of those early years and what you learned, um, some of the things you observed about, you know, stock density and what that would do with the soil health on cover crops and no-till. Right. So I left Mark in 14, went to extension in uh, February. That August, my grandpa passed away, finally beat cancer. So then grandma's like, you know, we're going to do what you want to do. Grandpa, you know, before that, Grandpa's like, you can kind of do what you want to do, but you need to make sure it's okay. Grandma and I have a good working relationship of as long as I get uh, approval before I spend a bunch of money, I don't, there's no idea that, that shocks her. And, you know, we invite her to any time we've had, uh, we had third and fourth grade uh, field day out here from the, the school, came out and watched the slake test in our field seeing no-till cover crops, you know, first year versus tillage in the same field because we weren't totally no-till yet. And she said, I don't understand all that, but keep doing what you're doing. Like, I can, I can see that it's working and just seeing uh, the changes. And the number one change was we sold the Swather and Baylor. I think it was in 15 or 16, which caused a big family thing. Because not all the family wanted to sell the Swather and Baylor. Grandma wanted to sell the Swather and Baylor. Um, so we eliminated, you know, we didn't, we didn't have a combine. But we would hire things cut. So we quit cutting grain or hay. And maybe we'll do some timely hay here or there. But we'll have it custom done. If we want a double crop is usually when we'll do hay. Uh, so we quadrupled the cow herd and got rid of all the iron. Okay. That's when I started realizing that if I managed my grazing, I could run a whole lot more animals. So I started uh, strip grazing in the winter. What do you mean by strip grazing? Daily allotments. Okay. And we weren't worried so much about the density there. So I was doing it on dormant range right out here by the house. So okay. if, if things were wrong, I could hear them. Easy to season. fix. Right. And we were just grazing away from water, but I had gone to, you know, listen to Jim Garrish at another meeting. There's enough green there every day if you rationed it out to get a cow through the winter without giving her anything. Like, I don't think he's right, but we're going to try it. And we had giant cows. So I was like, really thinking, I'm going to feed them something. You know, we got a bunch of hay in a pile, but I didn't want to feed it. Right. So kind of learning there and seeing and, and doing that. Then the next year when we had covers... You know, I had had a little bit of stack knowledge that we could take to the crop field of what. And it's still water's always the limiting thing of what you can do. How 
you know, I need portable water in more places, but that's expensive infrastructure. Our operation's unique. We own four acres that we grow food on. We rent everything else. Okay. So, and I have landlords, you know, my oldest landlord's 83. The youngest one's 60. I think Uncle Randy's 67. Is everything connected? That Close. You- I've got one here just north of the house. There's a half mile that we don't have. So it's kind of a pain that we literally have to haul cows three miles to be half a mile from the house. But like this year on our rotation, there's no cattle at the house for this entire year because we grazed last year, D4 drought, you know, high density, short days. We took a lot. I got to give it, let it, let it recover totally. So there'll be no cattle here for this entire growing season. And, that, you know, because last year we only grew about 150 or 200 pounds of forage after the cows left from June 1 to frost. That's about what I figured. Yeah. I mean, it, it was. Like, it, I wanted to bring cows back here, but. Will you graze after the growing season there or will you wait till next spring? It depends. If we grow covers, uh, we might not graze this at all until next year. If we don't grow total covers, we'll probably put our weaned heifer calves here. All right. Let me ask you this. In the third week of May versus today, how bad were you overstocked in May and how bad are you (laughs) understocked right now? So April, the first week of April, I forget the day. I walk in and I said, Macy, are you prepared to sell every cow? And you see she's about to cry. I mean, drought plan trigger date. Yeah. And so our first trigger date was in August of 2020. We sold 30% of the cows in 2020 because we we had burnt mm-hmm. because the year was normal until summer. So we had done our first burn on some property, and that's how we got to rent it was they're like, hey, will you burn? Yes. We're gonna, we don't like it. I'm going to learn it because I things that are uncomfortable usually are times for growth. I I'll just you'll just have to come over and burn with me a couple yeah. times. We'll get you lined yeah. out. Don't worry. Yeah. So it's like it's a tool tool in my toolbox I was lacking. So there was a management thing I could do that allowed us to grow. So we've got some more land for that. But so back to drought planted triggered. So we kept our heifers in twenty one because we had some crop land that kind of you know you can run a lot of things on crop land for a while. We've grazed weeds to get by because it's about you know producing more widgets right right more return um but 2022 was horrible for us i don't think it was easy for anybody (laughs) sir well we got lucky i had a friend that had picked up uh some crp to graze okay so july 20th we 100 percent destocked the native range we had went to native range around june 20th so we spent 30 days on rangeland that we paid rent on that we didn't graze so we invested uh so we're still you know that's one of the things on the the renting we're still trying to get a long-term lease because we're doing the right thing and they could yank it out from under us and that's a problem for a lot of people but we were on native rain or on the crp instead of our range and then we came home for three weeks and then we went to rented milo stocks so we spent some money uh, to kick the can down the road, knowing that we had the cash to cover that extra expense and that cattle market was most likely going to go up. Right. But we were 
you know, grazed forage is cheaper than fed forage, right? Always. So we made it through the entire last 18 months with two bales of hay. Wow. And it's because it was cold and I didn't want to move polywire. <laughs> <laughs> that's, I mean, that's, that's fair. It's one thing to move polywire when it's, you know, 55 to 75 and a nice, beautiful day. Something else entirely when it's three degrees below zero. Yeah, the ground was frozen, so we preset polywire and rolled a couple bales out. But so we got lucky. We get to April. What I'm seeing, we're grazing. Uh, there's no profile. Things aren't going to come out of dormancy healthy. Um, but I, t- I said, you know, we're just getting ready to start calving the 1st of May. Things may change in May. I, I can get to October, one lap through, and not hurt anything. But it puts us in a bind of then we're out. So I said, I want to destock before we're out because when you're out, you're out. Right. And that's not a good feeling. No. It's like when you go look at your bank account and it's at zero and no way to recoup that. Uh, so, yes, then May we get a few rains. Uh, end of April, you know, we got a few, but they still weren't. There weren't enough. Well, and they weren't. It's weird when you see rain that's not effective. It's like you go up to the ponds, and the ponds aren't full, so the water table's down. We didn't have any runoff, and we we noticed this last August. We'd get a two-inch rain. We caught a few there, but our crops weren't responding. Like, it's things were just going in and, I guess, filling profile. The moisture profile was so low. We that, didn't have anything up high. Yeah, And that, and I think that the high temperatures we had last year, like the daily highs weren't high, but it was the overnight lows that stayed so warm. And we had so many of those hot days where it just never cooled off at night. I I think that's why a lot of our garden failed last year. That's why our corn didn't pollinate very well, just because it was, we never had the right weather for, you know, for my garden right. corn to pollinate. And I think that's by extension, you know, if we notice those things in a very, semi-controlled environment like our gardens there's something similar going on out in the pasture like surely there were plants that were struggling to pollinate and germinate because of the weather you know both last year and this year at least that's that's kind of my observation this year an observation i didn't notice last year was warm season grasses seeded out way early this year like they've had struggle for two years and they're finally like things are good we're gonna make a seed head in june yeah like there's which to me, we're running about thirty days ahead. In in my eyes, in my mind, what I see is normal because I'm highly, highly observative. When I go in, I want a shovel, and I want to use my eyeballs. That's the most important tools is use the God-given senses that we have. That's Look down where, back to, uh, you know, touch, taste, smell, see, and listen to your gut. I mean, usually there's something there of like, uh, yeah, but. So, yeah, so we were ready to sell every cow, and we had doubled in size during that time. So we were only about half stock of what the normal county people would be. I don't want to feed hay, so I stock less. I want to have reserve ahead of them. I want to be able to burn to get rid of cedars. I'm learning. like, And that's where I always hope, and that's what I want to instill in my kids, is be a lifelong learner in other things, not just school things, just you go a few more years down this path, you'll have more stock than neighbors, and it'll still look like you're understocked. 
But I think it's cool. Uh, we could go look at some right out here when we're done of things that had nothing and looked like crap, but we had babied that when the rains did come, the explosion. Um, it, and, I, the, you know, out here where the first observation I saw was I put three paddocks in within three years right here by the windmill. So the place that the cattle would have pounded the most habitually, right <laughs> by the water, I have eastern gamma grass. You have it, eastern gamma grass? Yes. It had gone from two clumps to, I don't know, where 10 or 12 now. That paddock was grazed for 20 minutes last year. Wow. Because I want more eastern gamma grass. I, I grazed part of the paddock more. But we've got four properties now. The two that we've managed the longest both have eastern gamma grass, which is cool. Because they'll tell you, shouldn't really be here. But when you look back in the historical range, we're on the fringe. Right. So it's like through hooves, through management. And the, the biggest one to me was recovery is different than rest. Yes. What Explain that. Rest is just rest. There's not something there, right? Right. Like when you come in, you sleep at night, and you're like, well, I didn't sleep good. <laughs> Tanya's face I, is making Yeah, I don't know laugh. what she's doing. <laughs> but... Rest is just not something there, not being actively, you know, rest for grazing. There's no cattle there. We're resting it. Well, if it doesn't rain during your rest after you've grazed or it's dormant season, there is no recovery. There's no chance for that plant to regain leaf area, you know. So we're running on leaves versus running on roots, right? Right. That's what we want to do. We want to run on leaves. We want healthy roots, to get us through the times when we have to run on roots because we know we're going to slough roof, roots when we graze during the bad times, during normal times. But what I'm seeing is the more I push the system, the better it gets, as long as that recovery period is adequate. Now, when it doesn't rain, 18 months. Because we are in a semi-arid. We're, I mean, we're a little drier than you. We're a little sandier. Than you, it's uh, it's very different. I would yeah. say it's more like where where we are here on your place because of the way you guys manage it than it is anywhere around. But you, it's so much sandier here for things to grow, and water doesn't stay in the soil as long here as a whole. See, we don't have that. a runoff problem. We have a hard time keeping it in the profile. Yeah. So when I came home right here, looking out the dining room window, first soil sample to pull a Haney test, point three percent organic matter. Okay which is horrible. It's, it's a beach. Yeah. <laughs> Last time, and we haven't pulled samples for a while, we're one three one four. Oh, already. wow. In the pasture? In the farmland. Nice. Pasture would be three or four, at least. So, you said something about effective rainfall. Mm-hmm. And Dad and I have been talking about this for oh, the last several days. It's been, you know, been topic of discussion you know we're also talking about that the grass the grass is ahead and so here we are like we're not even to the 15th of july yet so i think y'all be hearing this in a couple of days after recorded but it was the 11th just a couple of days ago and i found some big blue stem grass that was almost five feet tall that had already headed out on july 11th which is really strange because you know we kind of almost touched on this earlier that all through um, March, April, were just dry, 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 dry. 
and much like you, I had a gut check moment in the beginning of April. Like, that was the plan. Like, okay, how much grass am I going to grow? And do I have enough grass to get my cows to May 1st? You know, because that's the goal. Like, you want to maintain enough grass to where you're going to graze all year back to May 1st. And it was iffy. It was really iffy. Like, I knew I could get them through the year on the, on the, on the rain that we had and, and the limited stock that I had, had agreed to take on. But I, I, called, I called both my custom grazers first part of April, and I was like, I can still take some, but be aware they may be going home in July. Yeah. And, you know, we go down through April, almost no rain. We get into May no rain. We get into the third week of May, no rain. And I'm starting to panic. You know, starting, <laughs> starting, starting to panic. The, the panic was setting in. So, you know, it's like the realization we should have had green grass two, three weeks ago. And here we are third week of May. We've had basically zero rainfall since the first of January. Yeah. There'd been a couple, a little bit of showers, but they didn't do anything. You know, and the last big rain that I'd recorded was July of 2022. Okay. You know, so from July 2022 until basically the end of May 23, yeah, we had some rain events, but it wasn't anything, it wasn't enough to really keep the grass growing, to keep the grass alive. Ponds just, you know, kept falling. Springs just kept drying up. You know the story. I'm pulling up my cocoa, Ross. Okay. Right now. Um, so I had uh, I interviewed that Brian Bledsoe from Colorado, and then released that podcast a week later. The day after I interviewed him, it started raining, and like ever since I've talked to that guy, he just seems smarter and smarter every day. We set uh, on the ranch. We set a record for wettest July on record that he's recorded over thirty five years of weather observations on the ninth already. Yeah. We set a record wet for July on the 9th, and we had a record dry April and May. You know, June wasn't spectacular, right? I think... Uh, we had a good, so... I'm going to say it was good, but it wasn't spectacular. The numbers tell a different story rather than the grass. And it, yes. I'll, I'll wrap this up in a second. So the num- my, my rain total for June was like seven and a half. Okay? That's below normal. Which you know, we can agree normal is a, or average. Yeah. Average would be 10. Okay. The low end is like two and a half and five. And then there's a lot of years like seven and nine. But the long term 35 year average was 10 inches for June. We didn't get that. But we've already set a record wet for July. And what I'm getting at is, you know, we made it all the way through May without grass. Like we had virtually no cool season grass grew in April or May because there was no dormant season moisture. There wasn't enough spring moisture to get anything started. And it wasn't there until the last couple days of May that it started raining. So I think when the, I feel like when the grass started growing on the first of June, we were four weeks behind. And in the last seven weeks, it's caught up and it's four weeks ahead. Yeah. So I think we're a month ahead. I think everything's functioning. What my eyeballs are telling me, because there's some switch that's shooting seed head. Okay. Which is like, okay, switch is usually one of the little bit later ones when you see that big panicle. I mean, you may see a little one here or there. Uh, the big blue stem is seeded out or getting ready to. So it's to me, 
we've already capped our forage production. Right? We're going to grow pretty minimal after we get to reproduction. Yeah, I mean, we're, you know, we're at stem and seed head on the big C4s now. If it rains and we have a cool fall, they will, you know, suck her out, till her out, whatever you want to call it on native range. They'll they'll put on some more leaf area lower. Uh, but what's neat is, so the more we've done, so this is the ninth or tenth year that we've strip grazed uh, native range that our plants have gotten shorter and we've gotten more leaves on the plants in the last 10 years. I wish I'd have taken a lot more pictures, a lot more. There's never enough pictures and it's never the pictures that you need that you took 10 years ago. Yeah, <laughs> I have a picture where I first noticed the Eastern gamma grass out here and there's like two clumps looking back and now it's like, it's neat. It's my trophy that I like to, you know, uh, Talking to Alejandro about the eastern gamma grass, he's like, if you'll manage for that grass, once that grass is made seed head, the paddock's ready to graze. So that was one other unlearning was, you know, growing up with a MIG mentor, wanting to stay, you know, vegetative grass. Yeah, keep uh, that grass in, in phase two and keep yeah. it putting up leaf. Now I'm like... I want to see that fully mature because I know that that plant's healthy. I know that plant has done what it needs to do, that my roots are hopefully full of reserves when I come in and defoliate, whatever level I want to be, you know, whatever the goal is. Uh, I, I think that MIG style of keeping your plants in phase two, where they're always trying to put up more leaf area, I think that's a very viable strategy if you're planting something every year, if you're on a mix that you're growing, I do not think that that's a viable strategy for a native range. Think, we have to let those plants do their growth cycle during the growing season. If not, you turn into selective overgrazing of your desirable species. That's what I see is if you just turn them in for X amount of days on a paddock, a big group, you go look at a pasture, it's half overgrazed and half not touched. Yes. Right? So we use fire to burn grass to even up pastures, right? Not for brush control, just for management. So I was like, well, if I just divide that in two, then I don't need fire for that reason. Right. I want to use fire for the right reasons. Sometimes you do need a fire uh, to reset the prairie clock. That's what I'm seeing. That's what I saw through the wildfires. Yeah. Was you know I hated fires till the wildfires. Then you could walk cool. on ranches that were managed well. You know the fire over here happened. We got D four drought, dirt blowing for months before it ever rained. Yeah. Uh, and then it finally rained that summer. And seeing the line of where the fire went across the ranch to where it didn't, and seeing the the vibrance of the grass and the forbs, and seeing. Uh, native legumes and things that you didn't see. Like it reset the prairie clock. Which, I think fire sometimes is what wakes up a seed bank because yeah. some of those seeds won't come out if they don't have some sort of a damage to them. Just rain Between is going to do that. fire <laughs> and hoof action. Yep. Uh, that latent seed bed is one of those things I want to learn more about. Well, what is it? Like 50,000 seeds? 50,000 viable seeds in every cubic meter of soil? And then there's then there's something like fifty thousand organisms yeah. in every teaspoon of soil. It's been amazing to me what's happened just in our yard at home, not the ranch so much since we've had chickens. 
just the way the yard grows differently and the different things that grow in the yard now because we have chickens. And we've cleaned some areas up that have never had grass on them, and I thought it was because there was shade. It's not because there was shade. It's because there was it was covered up with some mulch. As soon as the chickens got in, their stuff starts growing. We had my grandma ask a couple years ago. She came out to eat supper, and she said, what do you do to your yard? Why is your yard so green, so full, you know, no weeds? And in town, I spray weeds. We fertilize. I don't get it. She said, what do you, what do you spray on your yard? And I said, sheep. And chicken poop. <laughs> we we put the net up and we graze the yard with the sheep whenever the sheep are here. They're on a different property currently, so we're mowing. And you can use sheep poop, like, right, you don't have to compost it, do you? I just have them self-apply it. Well, I mean, I know that, but I think <laughs> sheep poop is not hot as hot like cow poop is. Uh, what does always, what burns us is if we use too much chicken litter. Because they can apply a lot. Like, you'll see where we move our sleds, we get a lot of pig weeds, which is more chicken feed. Yeah. Grasshoppers like it. Grasshoppers get eaten by the chickens. It's it, it, cows like it too. I mean, pigweeds are like what twenty two, twenty four percent protein. As long as they're not drought stressed, because we have killed some on pigweeds before. Nitrates, high nitrates, because they will accumulate. But when you pull a pigweed out of the ground, you look at that big taproot. Yeah, they're going down and they're cycling nitrate, nitrogen, making it available for plants. They're so. they're great, but like. I've noticed since we've stopped messing with the yard so much, bindweed comes, then pigweed comes, and then you'll start to see some other other stuff growing in, and then all of a sudden there's grass or whatever you want. Definitely opens the soil up, too. Our yard used to be so hard that you couldn't dig in it. I did potatoes two years ago, and I had to use a post hole digger to put the potatoes in the ground. And I thought, I'm going to do this. I'm not going to till it all up. I'm just going to put the potatoes and see what happens. Macy's and, face right now. Oh, it was awful. It was <laughs> awful. And and I ended up with a lot of potatoes last year, but it was a pain. This year, I put potatoes back in the same place, and you can walk out there now. And I haven't mowed or weeded it out. There's a lot of weeds, but your foot will sink six inches into the ground now. Well, we uh, broke a tiller belt in our garden that was supposed to be 100% no-till. We did it to do sweet potatoes and... We shredded a belt, so I think that was God's sign of not. Yeah, yeah. There's, so. a, there's a way. Where there's a will, there's a way. And I was blown away by the, the post holes that I dug. I mean, it was so dry when I did this last year. I didn't think they would do anything because they need room. I had so many potatoes. I mean, they made their way out. They It, it worked. I didn't have to loosen the soil. Bugs did it. Yep. So back to pigweeds. You know, we're talking about roots. That big, huge taproot on a pigweed, whenever I see that, you know, when I see it in the pasture, I'm like, oh, that's just good cow feed. But when I'm driving by somebody's farm field and I see that, I'm like, oh, that's a symptom of lack of compaction. Or that's a symptom of of compaction. That's a symptom of a tillage layer. Because, yeah, okay, you've got wheat, bindweed, and pigweeds. The pigweeds are telling you something, sir. The pigweeds are telling you that there's a hard pan down there, and they're trying to break that up. And what I... When I see pigweeds, I usually ask their fertility program. So if they're struggling with pigweeds, they're usually over-applying nitrogen because they're an indicator species. They like disturbance, whether it's, you know, they like bare dirt, whether it's tillage, grazing that did it, anything, and they're picking up that fertility. Well, the cool thing is they cycle it right back when they decompose into plant-available nitrogen. So if you let most weeds cycle through what they're doing you pay attention you learn you don't have those issues 
We've, we've got one crawling on the counter in there. Is that okay? <laughs> Feral farm children. I've started putting weeds, as long as they're not gone to seed head, back down in my garden. Mm-hmm. So wherever oh. I find weeds, if I'm going to go out and pull, which I really don't pull them very often anymore, I usually just cut them off and lay them down. It's, it's hay. It's ground cover now. And as long as there's not seed heads in there with them, it hasn't done anything other than made my garden better. You know, when I came back, we were minimal fertility. We've only used 10 units of nitrogen since I've been home. So 14 years, we've put wow. 10 units of nitrogen on one field. And we, we should have used a little up front to prime the pump. We pulled cold turkey. Like, we should have used somewhere just now getting functioning. But our pigweeds have cycled through. Our Russian thistles cycled through and used the salts. That's what you start looking at what those plants are telling you. Uh, there's a book that Gabe Brown told me to get, Weeds and What They Tell Us. Have it in my bag. It doesn't have every weed, but you usually look. They're an indicator of an imbalance. Or, I mean, an imbalance or of where you are in this cycle, really, because you got to get through it. Sometimes there's weeds I don't like, you know, Johnson grass. It's one we're going to have to learn to live with. Um, Musk thistle, ones I don't like. I don't like spraying thistles, but if we had musk thistles, I would probably spray them or, or cut them early. Because like any other thistle doesn't bother me. It's cow food. You open the can of worms. All right. Yep. We got Johnson grass we can deal with. Okay. But it's it's not hard to graze and and do well on if you know what you're doing. As long as it's not drought stress. As long as it's not drought stress. And regrowth gets us is what's what. If it is drought stress, you got to make sure they've got a lot to balance with. Yep. Okay. Um. But we have to deal with it. It's here. It's well established. There is like, there isn't an amount of money to get rid of it. Like, and there's no way we're going to spray the chemical to get rid of it. Like, because by the time we do, everything else will be dead. Same thing with old world blue stem. It's here. It's established, and we're just going to have to learn how to manage it. And the other one I'm starting to get really concerned about, you know, and it's not so much of an issue for us out here in the West, but the folks in the East. They got it bad. And you, you know what I'm about ready to say, right? Lespedeza? Yes. Yeah, I've got some here. I've got a, I pulled some yesterday, matter of fact, on the ranch. I'm like, going to put some sheep on mine. It's in an old reseeded soil bank deal. Uh-huh. Uh, so it wouldn't reseeded probably in the 50s, late 50s. So there's some little bitty stuff there I have to watch. It's next to a riparian area that I've just cut cedars, burned, has the most grass it's had, you know, in 20 years. I really have to be careful of uh, where cows are at. You know, if cows late season go there, they deposit that seed and right. manure, then I could have an issue of somewhere where I don't want it. But on that old field, to me, it's a legume that the sheep can eat at some point. I'm not to getting sheep to scale yet. We're just playing. But we need a lot more sheep at some point. That'd get rid of some of the problems we have. I want to know more about your sheep because you guys have been in and out of sheep more than once, haven't you? Haven't you had them and not a couple uh, times? We used to have wool sheep that we fed in a dirt lot out here and didn't eat them because they, you know, they're sheep. They stink. <laughs> the lanolin, they, you know, you didn't want to eat that lamb. Meat, you know, another Gale thing. Gale and Lynette, we get our first hair sheep from them in 14 or 15. Been messing with them. Go, you know, we we're almost to 100 ewes. And drought was kicking in. The price was decent, so we cold hard. We had bought some use. So we just started keeping our own stuff. And 
Uh, then we ran into another deal when, when Kay was born. They got into an old abandoned granary and ate some spoiled uh, Milo and got, uh, I think it was Listeria. Oh, no. So we lost 50% of the sheep herd in seven days. Oh, oh. no. I didn't know that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We didn't advertise that. That wasn't fun. I bet not. That was probably hard. Because if they went down, they died. Yeah. You, we doctored, you know, masked everything because it was the ethical thing to do. Yeah. Well, it's not in our program, but we masked and got through it. Um, so we're just uh, Walt Davis at Gale Fuller's. <laughs> that name keeps coming up again. Yeah, this this that, Gale Fuller that, guy. I always say that dang Gale Fuller. It's his fault. Yep. But Walt Davis, we were talking about sheep, and I was talking about, I was worried about death loss or something. He said, remember if he said boy or son, and it's just Walt's voice. Right. If you're worried about dead sheep, you don't have enough sheep. They <laughs> die, get more sheep. I think maybe you've told me that before. And that's a, that's a Nick Voss. He always says, get more sheep. Nick always tells me sheep are just looking for a place to die. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Tell you what, let's, uh, let's take five. I need to go recycle a little bit of coffee, and we'll be right back. Guys, I have to tell you about something. For the last couple of episodes, I've had a secret weapon called Magic Mind. I was very skeptical that one little bottle could do everything they claimed. Let, let me tell you, I was dead wrong. Let's just start with calm alertness. The morning cobwebs just disappear. Moving through the day, I have more energy and more focus. I take mine first thing in the morning, and I found I don't need that second cup of coffee so much anymore. And after taking Magic Mind for just over a week... I don't want to start my day without it. If you want to be like me and have more energy, mental clarity, and focus during your work days, the team at Magic Mind has a special deal just for Ranching Reboot listeners. Just go to magicmind.com ranching and enter the code ranching20 for a massive 56% off your first subscription within the next 10 days and 20% off your one-time purchase with the code ranching20 at checkout. That's magicmind.com forward slash ranching, or click the link in the description and use the code ranching20 at checkout. Sometimes you just have to recycle a little bit of coffee. <laughs> so um, we're going to put Aaron on kid duty now because, Macy, I want to hear from you. How did you meet this guy? Yeah. Well, you already said that. We did that. Liquor uh, store. Yeah, we did that. So I, w- I want to hear what your perspective is on soil health and food and feral children well and how about like also you met aaron we haven't heard about you guys getting married and moving forward but how did he rope you into all of this too and and where did you where did your perspective start and how did you get where you are now so i will tell everybody i'm a town kid and he'll tell people i was farm dumb when he met me because i thought farmers were rich because the kids at my high school if their parents were farmers they either you could tell they were poor or they had all the buckle clothes. They drove nice cars. I didn't know they were most likely living on debt. I didn't know <laughs> how that world worked because my family did not operate on debt. Um, and I had a grandpa that uh, he bred quarter horses and he had a Hereford herd. And so that's all I knew was horses and cattle. And But I still didn't really know anything. So it was pretty easy to get me on board because he didn't have to unlearn anything with didn't me. have to reteach you yeah yeah and i think it was in is either 2016 or 17 was the first field school we went to at gales and uh oh 
that guy with Mansento or whatever, I can't remember, he was talking about like all the Ballad Roundup and all that. And so that kind of got me on that journey. And when Aaron met me, I was living in a trailer house. I was broke. Um, I had a student loans, credit card, and car payment. And so all my money was going towards that. And so I was eating really crappy food. And looking back, all my health problems was because of how I was eating. I was eating, like, basically just <clears throat> store-bought chicken, fish. Um, at the first time he came over, we made zucchini, pi- zucchini uh, pizza with, like, the you shred the zucchini. And he's like, I did that for an hour, and it was not good. <laughs> uh, and so I thought the way I was eating was healthy, but it wasn't. I, um, I had... <laughs> Passed out at my house one time and hit my head on the sink. And we thought it was something was wrong with my brain. And it turns out it was just stress from the job I was in. And once I got out of that, I ended up moving in with Aaron because he wanted me to get debt free. So his stipulations was all my money basically had to go debt. So I got rid of my credit card and my car payment before we got married. That's awesome place to start from. He'll say that he like we're still working on student loan stuff, but... um, so that just kind of started that, and oh, I don't know. Once we went to Gales, I realized how bad our f- food system was, and then you throw the pandemic and all that into it. And my dad has heart issues. My mom has Hashimoto's, and so I'm really worried about because it can be hereditary. So I'm really worried about that. And then, like, I just want to feel good so I can hang out with my kids. And do what we're doing. So that's kind of that. So when Jeremiah was born, what changed then for you? I think it's just becoming a mom because you want to protect them from everything. And then looking into what is in their snacks. And I just want to spend as much time with him as possible because those first 18 years, that's when you, that's what you got. Because once they get out of the house or they get married, you're supposed to leave and cleave and they have their own family. So... And then last summer, um, one of our family friends, they had homeschooled their their son, and he ended up passing away on the 4th of July. So if his mom wouldn't have done that, she would not have any time. Wow. So uh, if you homeschool your kids, you get about, I think it's like 17,000 more hours with them. So that's, it's kind of a selfish reason, but that's one of the main reasons. And we've got, with Aaron's new job, we've gotten a taste of freedom and being a uh, I'm, let's see, I'm pretty much the gopher. I do whatever is needed to be done, and I'm a stay-at-home mom, so, um, where am I going to go with that? Oh, so I've gotten my own schedule. I get to do pretty much whatever I want within reasons, because I have to take care of the kids. I don't want to have another uh, traditional job whatsoever. Don't blame you at all for that. i got to add in here. So when I met this woman... She, you know, didn't need a man. She didn't know if she wanted to have kids. She was not going to be a stay-at-home mom because she wanted to work. And she's like, I don't know if I want to get married. Because mm-hmm. it was just a piece like, of paper. Well, that's a deal breaker. <laughs> so it's neat to see that through our journey, all the things she said that she didn't want to do 
or the thing she likes the most. Well, and not just that, but it seems to me like that's where you've actually found your freedom. Mm-hmm. Not just this is this is what I want to do because it's fun, but this is what gives me peace and joy as a mom and a, as a wife and as a as a human. Well, in our county, there's like 1,200 people and there's two daycares. So another part of that is childcare. Why would I pay somebody else to hang out with my kids essentially when I would just be putting all my paycheck basically towards that or insurance? And we don't need insurance because we get it through Aaron's job. That's one of the main reasons the moms here work. Yeah. Um, Tell us a little bit about what you guys have done different. I know you're traveling for all of your dairy for your kids. And that's a huge thing, not just traveling 20 or 30 miles. You guys drive a long ways to make sure that the kiddos have really good food and you spend a lot of money on it. And I think it'd be really cool to know a little more about that, what that looks like for you and how you make that work. So we shop at two dairies around Hutch. So it's basically a four hour round trip. So it's an all day process. You can say who they are. They're they're, they're our friends too. Uh, We get most of the milk from Jake. We get uh, milk, butter, and yogurt from Jayco, and then we go to Born Traegers and get cheese. And if one's out of the other, they're they're pretty they're pretty close. Um, and when we pull up to Jayco, they have this uh, farm store, and there it looks kind of like a barn, and there's a barn quilt. And every time we go there, um, Jeremiah will scream, "I'm home!" So because they have kids, oh, and yeah, that's adorable. Yeah, they have kids around our age, and um, you can trust what is in their food. They can tell you if you want to go see the cows, you can go see the cows. You can see the sheep pretty much anytime. And yeah. So you guys bring home frozen milk. I know you've told me before, like how much do you come home with on a normal trip? Oh, anywhere from 20 to 30 gallons. It depends on on, the vehicle. Yep. Cause gas adds up. So like sometimes say when I was in a meeting in Joplin, Missouri, I had the little red car. When I came home, I stop at Jayco. I can put 20 gallons of frozen milk in the trunk. Two hours, I'm home. It's just starting to sweat. Freeze it. Yep. We don't have to go buy milk again for a month. Now that we got two milk drinkers, we're going through a little faster. Yeah. Jeremiah will drink a gallon of milk a day if if you you let let him. him. He won't. He would rather drink milk than eat food. Yeah. Well, and when you're drinking milk from Jayco, it is eating food. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's the reason he grew because he was on those stupid health charts he was not on it and once um i think he was around 10 months the doctor suggested starting to supplement him with formula so we did and then i lost pretty much all my supply and then he uh about one we could switch him to cow's milk and then he magically we started he started growing because we were feeding him jaco milk when it has the cream in it and everything and doctor wanted to know what we're doing so we told him and um our, our doctor's He's, a he's tra- almost there. Yeah, we're working on him. He's traditional, yep. but he's almost. He there. agrees with pretty much everything we Doesn't do. Doesn't think you're going to kill him by giving him raw milk, at least. Mm-mm. Yeah, no. and well, he, that's a start. It is. Yeah. A, it's a good start. <laughs> yeah, especially out here because if we were wanting to go to, um, oh, I think it's Jeff Davis, uh, the doctor in Wichita yeah. that goes to Gales. It's just it's two hours. So if Jeremiah spikes a fever or whatever, I know they do Zoom, but it's just. It's hard, and I'd rather be in person. So we, we just still started. And he's our OB. Our yeah. doctor is our OB. Oh, cool. So cool. Yeah. both, there was just one thing we disagreed on, and we agreed to disagree, and he didn't dwell on it. So that's why I was like, he's almost there. He's professional. Yeah. He wasn't preachy of this is what I think you should do just because. He just, he tells us, 
medically why he thinks that, and then he lets us make our decisions. Is, is he open-minded? Will he yeah. do research if you mm-hmm. if you challenge him? The only on thing something? we disagreed on was COVID vaccine. Which for is probably Macy gonna be, when she was pregnant, probably going to be said, pretty common for we almost. Just said nope. Yeah, and he left it. He didn't get on us again. Well, since you said COVID, we'll, I'll just say it. Like, it wasn't a vaccine. It was experimental gene therapy. So there, go ahead and flag me. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, you're, you're getting ready to ask Macy something. Was I? Before Aaron um, broke in. I don't know. We were talking about food. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I think I was going to ask you, have the kids ever had milk that's not raw? Yes. Because uh, there's been times we've just ran out of it. And if you have a Jayco jug and then a whole milk with the red lid, they both have red lids, Jeremiah knows which one's which, and he'll pull Jayco out every time. <laughs> he'll drink the other stuff, but not as fast. Um, does he complain about it? Not he yet. He does not complain about it, but if he goes to the store-bought milk, he's not as regular. I, I mean, I, mm. I guess what I'm asking, does, does he articulate a difference in taste? Well, mm. he's kind of little. Not yet. Um, and I think it depends on where he's at. If he's at like grandma and grandpa's, he won't say anything. But if he's here, because there, we'll there's go a buy, clear preference. Yeah, yeah. That we'll was, buy some here. Like when we're out, you got to go get a gallon. Yeah, I, I the re- I was going to ask about that. I was going to ask what differences do you notice in his system when he does have it? He gets but, constipated. He's not as regular. Yeah. When we switch, yeah. right away. Well, it's the fir- within a day. And then his attitude. It's kind I do of, think we have more meltdowns when we're off of. That. It's probably a lot more sugar, is as yeah. far as like how it's meltdown, digested. Just like a temper tantrum. Yes. Yep. Okay. That and and doesn't sleep as well. And that's like with red dye. Red dye is another one. So we try not to have that in the house because you can tell when he's had certain snacks at grandma and grandpa's or wherever. He's just not the same kid. Yeah. And that's another reason I'm wanting to homeschool. Because I'm pretty sure he'd be one of those kids that would be labeled with ADHD, and he's just a busy boy. Well, yeah, he's not going to sit still for anybody. The number one reason we want to homeschool is because he will not excel sitting still. So I'm going to be called to the principal's office a lot because he's either bored or they're going to want us to medicate him. And I will not medicate him. Not not into that. I think it's. I mean, looking back, it's kind of amazing that didn't happen to you, Aaron. Honestly, yeah. because you were a busy kid, and well, I'm surprised you were able to. Sit. I had a good grandma that was in school for quite a while that I was at least scared that she could paddle me. Ah, you know, third grade teacher grandma Kay. Uh, <laughs> yeah, Grandma Kay doesn't mess around either. No, and she does really well with uh, with Jeremiah. That's like his favorite person in the world right now. He stayed the night there the other day, and he's like. You know, they came to church afterwards, and he's like, "I'm gonna, I'm gonna go live with Grandma Kay." <laughs> Bye. Well, I think you guys were kind. Of, I mean, she might have been scary, but she was always. She wasn't scary. You just knew that she just drew a line. No, um, don't and mess some around. of it is she just so nice, and that like you just didn't want to be bad because you didn't want to disappoint Grandma. Yeah, yeah. He, he just. And speaking of Jeremiah, he just came over. Yeah, yeah, and so then the other one on the. You're still talking homeschooling, right? A little? Yeah. Of why we're thinking? Yeah, sure. So I I get office from home for no-till. And we've got farm, you know, ranch stuff that we have to be around. But the freedom to take school on the road. So when I get to go somewhere cool, my family can go. And we can not have to make up a week's worth of work. We just 
take the week off and go enjoy life because life's just life, right? Life. Nothing's normal. You just it's a school. Through. I mean, life is a school, and and some of the best times homeschooling that we had as as a mom were the days where we were trying to sit down and do school and. It was a meltdown day. I was having a bad day or she was having a bad day. And we would just drop everything and go down to the river and eat lunch and read a book. And she learned more on those days. Like you guys were talking about earlier, emotional intelligence and knowing I can't sit at a desk today. I got to do something instead and teaching them that you can still be productive when you can't. Yeah. Sometimes it's just too nice to sit inside and you need to go outside. Go down to the river, you know, go for a walk. And, you know... I'll, I'll say it like I feel like the American public school system, the way the way it's designed and built, it's not designed to make people that want to start a company. It's not designed for entrepreneurs. It's not designed for CEOs. It's designed to make office workers mm-hmm. and assembly line workers. Yeah. If you look at the history, that's what it was, especially after World War Two. They just wanted factory workers. And I feel like World War Two is the downfall for mo- most everything in America, because they pulled the women out of the home. They realized they could put them, and that became another um, source of income that the government could tax. Oh yeah, we got to put the women to work because then we're because we're only taxing half the population. You know, if we put if we let the women all go to work, we can make them pay income tax too. Well, and then after having Jeremiah and researching like how formula came to be, because I mean, what did they do back in the day? There was no formula. Well, I didn't realize. They'd go get a goat. Well, uh, yeah, but uh, I didn't know that formula was advertised as the rich woman, wit, rich woman, which the ah, rich woman's source of um, providing food for your kid, and it was because there's some women that would be oh probably our grandmas or great grandmas age that if they saw someone breastfeeding they looked down upon it, and it's. Why would you take your time to do that when there's another option and you yeah. can go do what you want? Yeah, you then. can go do what you want. And that's just like with the convenience foods. And that was a whole other thing, marketing to, oh, you can have this done so fast, blah, blah, blah. Why not let us take care of this for you? And you just go buy it. I think that's the age my mom grew up in enough that when I met Brian and we started changing how we eat, mm-hmm. I really had to relearn how to, to grocery shop, even yep. before I started buying food outside of the grocery store because my mom taught me to shop cheap, yep. to shop frugally. And frugal food isn't necessarily cheap food anymore. Just no. because you don't spend a lot of money on it doesn't mean in the long run that it's cheap. No, and the food that we were raised on that way is not the same food that it is today. No, I agree. Even even processed food from when I was 10 or 11 looks a lot different today than it did then. I'm curious, like hearing you say this, what do you think... 20-year-old Macy would say to you if she was sitting here right now? Oh, I'm nuts. I, I, <laughs> I asked my doctor to take my uterus out when I was 20 because um, I had, the kid I dated in high school, we broke up and, we were getting, and I had had a bad relationship in college and we were getting ready to get back together. Um, he died in a motorcycle accident and I was supposed to be on the bike with him so that was like a whole other um, ball of wax. But after that, I would didn't really want to get married because I was like my parents are high school sweethearts so that's how I thought it was supposed to be and the movies they teach you that and so I was like well there's I'm done heartbroken yep yeah and I didn't want um I didn't want kids and I had asked my doctor how I could go about doing that and she's like well you you can't you're gonna you're gonna change your mind 
So, so with that being said, <clears throat> what would Macy today say to 20 year old Macy? If you could talk to her back. Wait um, for this Aaron guy. With I don't think that's beard. what she would say. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I was like, I don't know. I would need to eat better. I'd need to sleep. Not take out the student loans I did. Um, but at the end of the day, hindsight's twenty twenty. because if I would have changed anything, I don't know that I'd be here. Where so I'm maybe at. more what you would say is it's going to be okay. Yeah. You'll figure it out. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but I'd be a lunatic. I'd nuts. Know. Yeah, but yep. same same with me. I mean, I haven't changed my perspective on things dramatically. When I met Brian, I was <clears throat> kind of a gardener, like Aaron said, and a lot of the stuff that we talk about <clears throat> translates really easily to a small scale, and it's easy to understand if you look at it in a gardening situation. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't, like, all new or anything for me, but I know that if I was talking to my 10-year-ago self, I would be looking at me like, what in the heck is wrong with you? You're a crazy woman. Well, we're bringing a dairy cow to the farm in September. Or Are October. you? Yeah. Got, I got her a heifer. Mm-hmm. That won't, won't we, we won't have milk till 25. Right, like but this is half. still like, I mean, I know you've been talking about it for a long time. That's, is this the start of A&M Dairy Farms? Oh, I don't know if we'll do that. I think um, at least we might sell some cheese. Uh, I don't know that I want to mess with the whole lot with milk like that. But when you got two kids with maybe we'll have more someday, it's an investment. When they're spinning. You guys are going to, yeah. Our number one item that we buy every month the highest bill is dairy yeah and it's because it's good dairy yep and it's i mean 20 gallons of milk stay, at 13 dollars a gallon is not cheap our kids stay it's 11 you don't have to part. spend it's a, but you don't have to spend money on medicine but and i grew sick. up so on that i grew up with asthma horrible yeah what i would tell back then is it was a you know as a product of my environment we ate cheap food which was okay. That's what got us. That's by. what our parents knew to feed us. But the environment, the food, made it worse. And when I got to college and started realizing some triggers and eliminating some things, I think this will be year twenty-two with no ER visits wow. for asthma, and I quit taking the medicine. Well, I know. I mean, when we were a kid, it was it was constantly mm-hmm. a concern. Like and Aaron that, would get sick. I had to and carry an inhaler with me all the time, everywhere. Everybody's always like, yelling at him to stop running I all the time. I barely have an inhaler. I use one August and September are my bad months. Just which allergies. Pollen and stuff, I guess. Uh, changing food has changed me with that. That's and, huge. And my doctor's like, I don't know what you're doing. Keep doing it. I don't see you. So Cool. But then you tell your doctor what you've been doing, the changes in how you feel, and they don't believe you. <laughs> like, no, you got to be doing something. We've else. got a good local doctor here. She's good. Open minded people here. There is. It's a, a great part about living in such a small community. And the further west you go, the harder, the easier it is to find people that are still small town minded, really, I think. Well, I think because as you go farther west, the towns get smaller. They do, and there's for so much more space in between. I mean, it's almost like where we live is kind of the line between. You go east of Medicine Lodge, and there's ten miles between little towns everywhere, and and, and come, there's two miles between farms, and you or come, less, and you come west. You go west. You get over here to Comanche County. Thirty miles between towns, and and ten miles between, between farms. or 
five, seven miles between, you know, farmsteads and homesteads. But you can see where they all used to be mm. driving around. Yeah. Well, and you talk about food deserts a lot. And it's something that we bring up often. And we're kind of on the edge of where the food desert starts. So it's 45 minutes for us closer to drive to the dairy they go to. And if you go west the same distance, you can't find raw milk or fresh produce for until you get to, to, to I, I-25, right? Like to Colorado. It's, it gets bad. Like the farther you go west from I-35, it gets really bad. I mean, I'm, and I'm not saying that there aren't, you know, good little pockets of local food culture that exist in places. There's not many. But we're not in one. Well, and there's not many west, west of of 35 definitely west of 183 there's not there's just i don't know that there is a raw dairy that you can go buy anything from west of there was one at fowler yeah i think i saw one and listed like around were, fowler dodge city i don't remember if they feed a mixed ration or they're not grazed that was our thing on dairy was with me having asthma allergies all that we wanted to try to to get our kids set up with good health young you know they used to drink milk straight out of the cow, use the cream for whatever, and those old timers were healthy into their 90s. They might die of a heart attack at 75, but a lot of them got close to 100, and they were so strong. Yeah. So I remember about my great grandpa's when he shook your hand, even when he was 92 or 93, you knew he had a hold of you, and he had the biggest hands of any man I've ever seen. Yeah. yeah. Just big round finger, just. You know, Strong. mountain of a man. Yeah. And at 90-something, right before he went to the nursing home, he could open and close gates that I have to use the cheater bar. And he goes, <laughs> done. Like, so their food had something to do with their longevity, their health. Well, and their lifestyle, too, you know. like They were we, active. We were talking about work. Was it me and you and Brendan were talking about work a couple days ago? And, and Brendan said, he asked, do you think that everybody... How did he ask that? Do you think that everybody has the same perspective or that work feels the same hard to, or difficult to everyone? Yeah, 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 yeah. And I, I said, no. I said, I know it doesn't because me today that loves to go out and dig potatoes in the dirt when it's 100 degrees, and that's miserable work, man. Like, that's miserable work. I get joy out of doing that even though it's hard, gross work. Ten years ago, I would have been a miserable cow if I had to go out and do that. There would have been no joy in it because I just didn't see it from the same perspective. So I think not only the physical part of their hard work, but building that into the mentality of this is how we take care of our body, our life, our family. And it's just come occurred to me over the last year that <clears throat> in cities, people spend two, three, four, five, six hours a week in a gym mm -hmm. working mm -hmm. out so that they can be healthy, so that they can go to sport events with their kids, <laughs> and so they can afford to buy good food. When in, If you take the six hours out of the gym and come home and build a freaking container garden, that's a lot of work, and you wouldn't have to go to the gym. You think about if you didn't grow up gardening or canning or have one of the people from old school that knew what tough times were, it's a lost element of society. Yeah, people don't even think to do it. I think COVID really changed that. Like, I think women... Well, she was always... The garden was kind of her thing. So it's, if something... If she didn't get watered or weeded and something died, she'd be like, oh, we'll just... We'll grow more next year. Usually we have a year or so, whether it's in the freezer in cans of tomatoes, sauce, and that kind of stuff. She realized in COVID that if the trucks stopped coming, what it really meant 
if you don't grow enough food, you can't grow food till the next year, and then it's the end of the year. So you're really like two years away from food, yeah, two growing season away. So it's it was humbling. I've, I've, uh, and I've, having failures of drought and that stuff during that time. Yep. It's like, I know what I'm doing. Um, I'm glad you brought that up, though. It's it's something that I've, I've always gardened and I've always been able to grow tomatoes really well. Last year, I didn't grow. I think we had like five that actually grew. And it was it was crazy to me. I just didn't. I kept thinking they're, that they're going to be fine. They're going to be fine. And then they weren't. And you when you're growing food for a purpose and your crop fails, it feels different. It 100% feels different when you've been looking at this into the future. There's an emotional aspect to it, and you want to change things quicker, too. We've got a we've got a two-year-old. Or what is she, one? Yeah, she'll be two, she'll be in, two December. in December. Yeah, she's uh, trying to crawl around on a table and mess with cords. That's all right, though. So. Uh, you know, I, there's definitely something to the food. You know the food, the quality, the soil, and I think it'd be, it. I think it's a good observation that you know, those of us that still had some contact with you know the older generation that went through the '30s, that went through. I mean, well, they'll tell you is they call it the worst hard time. And what's really strange about the '30s is, yeah, it was a hard time. It was bad. You know, everybody talks about the Dust Bowl and how dry it was. It was drier in the 50s. It's been drier the last three years than it was in the 30s. You know, they talk about how bad the Dust Bowl was in the 30s. Um, Let's go look at social media from the last 12 months of pictures and videos from Ulysses and Liberal, Kansas. Mm -hmm. Let's go to Illinois, where we've got dirt blowing across an interstate and causes a pileup of cars. Oh, but farming's not the problem, right? Yeah, we... uh we did not seed, oh, probably nine. Yeah, we might have seeded 10% of the acres to, we either seed, you know, rye, triticale, wheat, whichever one's cheapest to graze. Right. Uh, I failed to drill because I was scared that my disturbance of the no-till drill going through it would disturb the residue that with no moisture in the profile that all of our ground would be blowing. So 10 years of hard work would be gone why I just sat here, you know, depressed that I couldn't do anything and I wasn't going to go run a chisel or a lister to, to stop it from blowing. So we just went with our gut with the signs that it's not raining. It's not in the forecast. You know, the long-term people were talking, El Nino's coming. It's going to rain <laughs> sometime. Yeah. Uh, and I looked, you know, when I went to Burlington in February, it looked like we were on the in-between line in the middle. Yes. That might not get rain till August. And I'm like... Okay, I this and it starts to wear on you. Like I'm doing the right thing. I'm taking care of stuff. And I'm still running out of grass. And then somehow some people just don't run out of money, so they just get more hay and keep cattle and no, pulverize their pasture and I'm just like <laughs> Man. They're and, just and, burning through their equity. And we're young enough, our equity's limited. We're about to have the, the flip of that. Um <laughs> But it's just, it's hard to realize, you know, you're trying your best, you're doing the right thing, and it's still Still looks not like it's working. not going, but it is working. It's just not working at the speed you want it to. Well, and what we've talked about being observative, that I can see above ground not growing grass, 
But what I didn't see was when I was doing below soil, and then when it did rain, I saw the response of, okay, so at least I had healthy plants. I had a functioning soil that basically went dormant because soil runs on water. Right. No water, so it goes to sleep. It's meant to do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's like, okay, we've talked about 30s, 50s, 80s were bad. Yeah. We go through cycles. So the thing, this, uh, you know, weather changes, right, all the time, however long the earth's been here. Well. we got to pay attention, right? Uh, Brian Bledsoe said this a few episodes ago. He said, he asked me, he said, do you know what the difference is between weather and climate? And, it, it, of course, you know, I, I had to say no. So he said, climate is what you expect, and weather is what you get. Awesome. And he, you know, he also made a great point that, you know, our, our observation of the climate is limited to like a hundred years with any degree of reliability and precision. I mean, and there's an argument can be made that that's maybe more like 70 years. Well, and it's also littered with emotion. Right. Okay, fine. You know, the planet is, is billions of years old or, you know, 8,000, depending on what history you want to believe. The climate we've experienced and measured for the last hundred years is but a blink of an eye in the lifespan of the planet. And to think that we understand the weather pattern good enough that it's not going to change is a total fallacy. Well, it's arrogant. It's yeah. really arrogant to think that. And, you know, I, I, I'm not going to argue that whether or not humans have had an effect on the climate. Okay? That, that, that's not up for debate. The climate is changing, period. Whether or not we've had an effect on it, the climate is changing, and we need to be better prepared to adapt towards changing climates. What humans have contributed to is lack of resiliency. That when we get the big rains, the big windstorms, our soils, our resources degraded, so it hurts worse. I agree. We're less yeah. resilient. Uh, I'll be 38 in a couple weeks. I remember the first year we cut wheat that had rust. So I'd have been high school-ish, and the combines were just black, covered from the, you know, the rust off the plants. We had never sprayed a wheat plant for rust until I was in college. Wow. And, and rust is a fungus, right? Yes. Yep. And now it's common practice to spray once, if not twice, on most wheat fields. And so things are fungicide. changing. <clears throat> yeah. Things are changing just in my short time. Uh, well, and what do you... Like- a, a quick explanation of that for somebody who might not understand it. So what do you think changed? What do you think are some of the causes that, that created that? Why is there rust on wheat now where there wasn't Some before? of it is a soil component that we're lacking something in the soil that's letting that plant be open to infection somehow. Uh, whether And whether that's a fundamental problem right. with soil fertility or whether that's a fundamental problem with plant genetics – and that's the second part is plant genetics is so as we mess with plants, whether we're doing uh, genetically modified, whether we're uh, just Hybrids naturally selecting whatever whatever we're doing, we've we've always wanted to increase yield. Always, when we start messing with genes, genes are multifaceted. So when you add, delete, use something that maybe you don't understand, there's good and bad that can happen, right? Yeah. So we've been messing with things we don't fully understand 
Some of them have done good things. Some of them have done bad things. Some of them have done things we'll never understand. Yeah. So it's, you know, we want to be in charge, but we're not. We're not managing And what's cool, so you remember the, I was thinking of this this morning, like, what's Brian going to ask me today? The (laughs) the big oil well that uh, in the Gulf, when they had that deep... Deep water horizon. Right, when it... Blew up or whatever. What fixed the spill afterwards? The ocean. Right. The ocean did, yeah. The system, given time... Corrected the imbalance. Yep. Right? Even yeah. though we had a major mess up, and it wasn't like it cleaned it up in a day. Um, and that you could probably go down there now and still find, you know, some evidence or some damage I'm sure. of that spill in places. But for the most part, you know, the environment is healing. And it's just not going to heal on the time scale. We that, want it to. On, that we want it to. That'll satisfy a human being. Like Chernobyl. Yeah. Chernobyl's healing. We we were talking about this the other day, Brian, about... Um, about I'm going to lose my train of thought. Ignore me. Go on. Sorry. <laughs> well, you were talking about, you know, that it was like late 90s, early 2000s, first time that you saw anybody spray for, like, stripe rust. Yep. I, I don't remember. You know, I'm just a few older, few years older than you. I don't necessarily remember fungicide spraying being a big deal. I'm also not a farmer. I didn't grow up on a farm. I just worked for one part-time. And it seems to me like, you know, once you start down a path of using synthetics on tillage, you you start wanting to use, like a guy will start wanting to use, like, okay, I'll just use the mildest thing that I can. And, you know, then we get to the point that after 20, 30 years of chemical usage that everybody's using like the same three or four things, you know? Okay. So we're putting fungicide on, there's some herbicide and there's a pesticide. Well, we got to get, we, you know, we got to get rid of this aphid and we can't have this leaf rust and we can't have those pigweeds. Okay, great. You know, we kind of danced around a little bit. Yeah. I had an overspray issue with a farmer neighbor on some of my fields. What's my production loss in my pasture? not measurable how much fewer weeds that are edible by cattle are I going to grow versus how much more grass is going to grow there you can't measure that either can you measure the loss of soil fungi due to the application of fungicide next door can you measure that well that's going to get real hard i mean so how do you like how do you quantify that and you brought up a good point when we you know, we had to pause for a few minutes. If I would have sprayed something on my property that damaged his ability to harvest his crop, you're damn right. I'd, I'd get lawyers would be involved, right? But he sprays something on his crop that damages my pasture and the, his insurance company, or not his insurance company, the sprayer applicator's insurance company is just like, yeah, whatever. It's just pasture. Because it's because it's not quantifiable, basically. Something like that. Because they don't, because, and maybe that goes to, like, the federal government's attitude and USDA. Like, you know, range ground, pasture ground is just valued at, like, the lowest. You know, and a lot of times it's considered waste because it's not tillable. Well, I think the best ground is not tillable. I mean, honestly, 
if it's not tillable, that means it probably hasn't been tilled and it's probably still native. So that's that to me be some of the best stuff. But what I'm getting at is, you know, we've been talking today about, you know, we are, well, we haven't talked about what's in the food. We just talked about why you guys don't want to eat it. We talked specifically about Red 40. You know, whether or not people want to talk, acknowledge that there could be, you know, herbicide residue in the food or that the, the fungicide we sprayed altered a fundamental process in this plant, which is why it did this, which is, I don't know what I'm saying here, but what I'm saying is, we apply these chemicals, right? And then we start using them and then we get reliant on them. And then we have to keep using them because if we don't, the system collapses when the system was probably fine in the beginning when we started using these things. So like, you know, okay. Wheat stripe rust cuts down yields. It's a bad thing, right? So we got to spray fungicide on it. Well, out in my pasture next door, I depend on those fungi to connect the scurf pea to the white clover to the big blue stem to the sagebrush to the pigweed because fungi are the internet of plants and fungi the fungal mycorrhizal pathways let plants share nutrients and minerals and information and, and to some extent information you know people have said that fungi and mycorrhizal fungi networks are the internet of plants and it's very underappreciated and <laughs> You know, it. on one side, we've got folks going, you know, hey, fungi are the internet of plants. And on the other side, we've got guys going and, carpet, going and spraying fungicide over thousands of acres with airplanes. <laughs> and it just seems like, it seems like that as we're going through time, that these two sides of agriculture are getting farther and farther apart that the production commodity side just wants to double down more chemicals, more production, got to feed the world. Don't worry about those lunatic, you know, those lunatic lefty fringe regenerative guys. Don't worry about them. But then again, those of us on the regenerative side, it's hard for us to understand why people won't change. Right. Is, you know? is it, is it, I mean, you know why people won't change because the change is scary. Just like Aaron said, they, they switched quick and he said, maybe they should have not switched to know chemicals as quick as they did. So, you know, you you understand why it's so hard for people to change, but that doesn't mean that you don't also see that the longer it takes for someone to change, the harder the switch is going to be. And when you're in the midst of not changing yet, it only makes sense to double down on what you're doing because the alternative doesn't work. And if the alternative doesn't work in your mind, whether it actually works or not, you would, would be crazy. I mean, they really genuinely think we're crazy people. And, and I get it. Like, until you open your mind, until you're ready to know, you won't know. I like being one of the crazy people in agriculture. I do, too. I, you know, we've been talking about, Aaron, Aaron's been talking about, like, letting the, the, we were talking about the soil profile, the seed profile, and, and about managing for yourself or managing for what you want. And remember we were talking the other day about, I went down this, like, wonky road of plants knowing what to do. Remember when I was telling you about that the other day? So he's thinking that God made plants and animals perfectly, right? And they're just built to know what to do. So if it's cold, it's too cold, and your fruit tree has flowers, it's they're going to freeze and they're going to die. And it's not going to make fruit this year because the tree's brain, quote, 
knows that this isn't the right year to do that. It just knows. Like innately, it just knows. Animals work the same way. They know where to go when it gets cold. They know where to have their babies. They know how to have their babies. And I thought to myself, if if animals <clears throat> are built with this innate knowing of what to do right, correct, and plants were built like that, we would be ignorant to think that we as humans don't have the same capability. I think the difference is we take our logic and our emotions and live in those instead of listening to, like Aaron said, our intuition and knowing how to feed your body and knowing what you should actually be doing every day with your kids. You wait and you listen to the news to tell you or your doctor to tell you. And we've just been taught that we don't know. And I think that's really, really wrong. And I think it's dangerous to, to put yourself in a position where you believe you are so incapable and waiting for somebody to tell you what to do all the time. And I think, so I'm going to interject here, when my time in extension, uh, especially when we went through the farm bill, I got to spend a lot of time with one-on-one with producers and really analyze why they made the decisions they did, even knowing that uh, they were perpetuating failure. Right. And they kept talking themselves in, well, I'm going to feed more hay because calf prices are going to be up. I'm going to make more money. Okay, why? Well, you start getting into some of their operations. They're so far into debt that the bank now is telling them when they're going to sell calves to service a note, which is usually not the best time to sell their commodity. Maybe calves, maybe it's wheat. They're selling because that's what's satisfying the lender. They don't And that's have- not to say that bankers are bad there's some really good ones but as we get into the perpetual debt of agriculture that's what stems a lot of problems we get bigger 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 even if you're small you can rack up a lot of debt i mean you can go build a twenty thousand dollar high tunnel on a you know a city lot and be in debt be upside down in a hurry yep yeah so it's like we live in a, a risky expensive business where and, money's easy to get and too. realizing that People don't charge themselves labor. Like, ah, I'm here. Mm, Yeah. Or you don't charge rent, so you're subsidizing, so you don't realize. I don't think they realize that they're they're eating up their equity over time by subsidizing. So when your kids get something, there's not much left. Right. There might be some land, and then somebody wants to tax it and say, hey, we need some more of that. Um, So it's trying to go back to... What I learned from Grandpa Lawrence was, you know, take care of your land, take care of your family, give the shirt off your back to anybody who is in need. Well, and also small, far, but it started here. When you think about banking like that and the way that banking works in ag typically, especially when people get big, I was taught at a pretty young age that like a business partner is really dangerous. If you want to have a good business relationship with somebody, you each have your own business, and then you can work together. But if you actually go into business with someone, and each of you own half the business, you don't have control of your business anymore. You just don't. And when you go in and ask the bank for more money, then you can afford to pay back. That's what happens. You don't get to make your decisions anymore, and that goes right back to what I was saying. You don't get to use your intuition. You don't get to do that anymore because you have to pay your note, or the bank comes and takes your land. Yep. And I think that's... I think there's probably a lot of folks that we've got to drive past to go from this place to my place that are in that situation that, you know, they're in a situation with a bank that they're paying four or 8% to right now. 
and the bank is telling them when they need to make payments, they got to go home, figure out how to, you know, what am I going to sell today? Am I going to sell the wheat? Am I going to sell the calves? Am I going to sell next year's corn? Pre-COVID, it was Kansas was one of the top three farm bankruptcy states in the nation. That doesn't surprise me one bit, just based on what Macy was saying when we very first started talking about about thinking farmers. that farmers were rich because oh, yeah. because it is it's like they got stuff to not pay taxes you got yeah you, you gotta have. gotta buy a new suburban so that you have that as a write-off this year so you're driving a sixty thousand dollar vehicle that costs more than any house i've ever even looked at like that one thing alone right there a vehicle can bankrupt a family because you have to have the the newest coolest it's suburban it, they say this in ranching for profit and all right, fine. <laughs> I wasn't going to hit it, but everybody was like, push the button. All right. We'll we know. The we... And, and there's probably a few people out there that want to call me out every time I miss one. But anyway, <laughs> what they say is uh, I forgot what I was going to say. What were we talking about? That farmers are rich. Farmers are rich. Oh, what, they, are what rich. they say is um, that decisions made in the name of tax avoidance rarely turn out to be beneficial in the long term. And myself being, um, being around and in business now for 20 or for 17 years. Yes. There were some things I did fairly early on in the name of tax avoidance that, uh, you know, now 10 years later might not have done that. I mean, I'm not saying it's like, you know, really yeah. hobbling me or really set me back. But, you know, it seemed like a good idea at the time. But uh, yeah, looking our, back, I should have maybe made a di- different our, decision. Arlie Lording, I like that he's a sharp cat. And getting to sit in the pickup with him when I worked for Lording's and ride around and pick his brain and he'd just talk. Because his, his dad didn't own anything, like a quarter land. Right. Saved cash. So when when he passed away, it gave Arlie the opportunity to buy that ranch. Oh, cool. So he didn't own anything. He deferred his enjoyment to give, you know, perpetuate a family wow. dream. So that's neat. Of He goes, everybody wants to buy something to avoid tax. You're not going to outrun the tax man. You will pay tax on that money. So sometimes it's better just to pay the taxes and keep your money Yep. versus buy something that, to avoid paying tax. That was one of the first things I learned from Dave oh, Ramsey, like, like day one, you know, like that, that those very, and my dad says it all the time too. Um, my dad's, you know, like hardcore yep. right wing and probably hates taxes Dave, as much Dave as the next Ramsey, guy. Uh, first summer I worked for Mark Lording was 2006. He came in, I'd worked there a month. He said, hey, I'm going to give you a bonus. I'm thinking, what's this? We've been working hard. He said, every Sunday evening for the rest of the summer, you're going to do Dave Ramsey, uh, condensed version, two sessions a week or whatever with a college and high school age group. So the Methodist pastor that had gone through it led us through there. So first summer I get. You know, that was probably one of the best paychecks Mark ever gave you, It too. took me about five years to to figure it out. And it's still, it's hard to stay on it. Well, it's hard to but stay on it. it but once you, And once you know, you know. So even if you fall off the wagon, it's not like you've lost the information and you can't correct course. But because it, did, yeah, everybody. it did make the hair on the back of my neck stand up anytime somebody's like, well, you should just go borrow money for this. Yeah. Mm, yeah. No. <laughs> I can't, can't do that. We got we to gotta wrap this up. So we didn't talk about Comanche pool at all. 
but yeah. let's talk about no-till. Um, you got some events coming up yet this summer, this so fall? So for no-till, uh, August 15th, we'll be in Waverly at Darren Williams' place. Okay. Doug Peterson will be on the docket that day. Darren's going to talk. Candy Thomas. Okay. Be a good day. Okay. I think he's been dry here lately, but I think he's got a little bit of stuff for us to look at. What yeah, about, from what I what I hear, the Flint Hills are still really dry. Gail, I was texting Gail. He said they had got an inch the other day to keep the grass alive. He didn't have that it was growing well. So uh, Josh and Gwen, they're kind of from a little bit northern of Flint Hills up there by Cottonwood Falls, Clements area. Um, they're horrible dry. Yeah, they were telling me that they were about half stocked and probably going to be getting rid of stuff early because just because it was dry. Um, they had grass, but their ponds were empty. Yeah, one of the Bates family beef that does, they come to Gale and Lynette's. Yeah, Justin, yeah I know Justin. Yeah, yeah. He said they were out of, basically out of water. So it was shutting oh. down their, you know, decreasing what they could produce for beef, yeah. which cuts into your business. Right. I mean, I guess I'm lucky because I've got, you know, well-developed watering systems on the ranch. None of my ponds went dry. You know, that, that wasn't a worry. Um, but I guess, you know, that was that was part of drought planning and preparation that's been beat into my head for years and years and years. Because I've been there, you know, I've been around long enough. I've seen the ponds dry. Mm-hmm. I've seen the creek dry. I remember the late 90s when it got dry and dad panicked one summer and drilled like four water wells trying to find trying to find some water and he never found a water well and he ended up just having to you know shuffle cattle around i was gonna say that part of the reason that you're in in a better position is because pop has always been drought-minded and and tried to drought proof as much you can the ranch i mean i know you can't drought proof anything but there's there's water what if you graze at least like that it could be dry all the time yeah. When it is dry, it's normal business. Cut numbers, move on. And it that's what takes some of the emotion out of having to sell cattle is this is a business. Yes. Um it stinks and you a get plan. attached, but it's like well, and, and seven out of ten years, you're gonna be doing luck you're lucky to break even. Stop. Like if, seven if, of ten you're if, lucky. If you're a good operator. No. Yeah. Yeah. You live for those three where you get the wins. <laughs> But I think that's that's also the I think that's a good thing about, you know, being in regenerative agriculture and soil health and being involved in local food communities is yeah, you might not get the home runs every seven, you know, those three years out of ten. But I'd take a second base hit every year over that. Yeah, and seeing your neighbors, you know, succeed when you're in a group like this, like like last year it wasn't near as dry for Gail and them and we were struggling more. It's crummy to see them, but it's nice to have their support when when they're doing better too for sure yep yep Aaron is there anything else about no-till you want to share before we go like is there anything that brands I think you need to come to winter conference in January if possible not just we'll we'll talk about it we'll Uh, talk about it is Uh, I'd I'd love to come is there anything that the people that listen to this need to know about no-till as far as how it can be a resource for them well you could visit our website Notill.org. It's an easy one. Uh, has all my contact information on there. Uh, but like our winter conference is uh, three three days. And three days. You guys do what? Second week of January. It'll be like the third. 
22 through 24. We didn't 22 get... through 24 this year. be the third week, I think. Okay. But we have three days, and uh, just the speakers that you get to spend time with, like Jay Fuhrer is going to be a keynote speaker. Jay's getting older. Uh, he's not going to speak as much. So it's, it's kind of nice that, that he's coming. Uh, Deanna uh, and Kelly, uh, North Dakota. Guardian Grains. Okay. They'll yeah. be there. There's yeah. a couple speakers that we've we've released. Cool. Okay. Cool. See, I normally get roped into doing Soil Health U. The week before. Okay. So you guys have switched. So it has been in the past. It's been no-till in the second week of January in Wichita. And the third week of January is um, Soil Health U in Salina. Yep. And I guess we're changing. We'll I guess switch. we're switching next right. year. And okay. so, like last year was my first one to attend, and I was in charge of it. But I got to spend <laughs> three days with David Brandt. Oh, cool! Oh man! And just how humble of a man he was, and then to surprise him and give him the David Brandt Legacy Award was the coolest thing. Like because his kids had called and got a different motel, and like they didn't even know. He didn't know they or were he there. He didn't know they were there till they showed up at lunch and then you know he's thinking something is up. Why's my why's my family there? But to see him just you know how humble he is was yeah. uh that he had a statement of, you know, I just planted the seed. You guys took it further than I ever could have. So that's what I really want to just plant seeds within people that we want to do better. Because we need we got to do better in everything. In agriculture, society, you know, we with, just, we have to. With our food, with our kids, everything. Yes. And I think that's a great place to end with a little dedication to Dave. Thank you for that. I mean, Dave will definitely be missed. All right. That's it from us, guys. Get out of here. Go have a great week. See ya. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to like, share, and subscribe to our podcast. We'd also love to hear your thoughts, so leave us a review if you haven't already. And don't forget to check out the Q&A and the polls on Spotify. Your support helps us bring more enlightening conversations and fresh stories from the world of farming and ranching. Thank you for listening to Ranching Reboot, your favorite regenerative ag podcast.